Thank you all for your patience with us over the next couple of weeks as some things happen in the hallway out here. Um, I told my kids that we were putting a petting zoo in. <laughs> they, they did not appear to buy that. And so we are, it's a temporary wall up there. I hope everyone has, word has filtered out at this point that it is a temporary wall. Um, and we're going to be putting drywall along, I say we, as if I'm doing anything. Skilled individuals are going to be putting drywall in along there and putting some TVs up along there uh, so that we can put pictures and uh, advertisements for various ministries, uh, children's ministry announcements, all of that. So we're trying to update it, and uh, there's some very, very um, skilled individuals who are doing that, and I'm very thankful for their work on that. So that's what's happening out there that is a temporary wall. We can turn to John 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, this is uh, just an amazing, amazing passage. John 3 is where we're, we're going to be today and next week as well. Nearly everybody, if I were to ask uh, you and if I were to just go out and take a survey, I think nearly everyone, probably everyone, would say that there is some major problem at work in our world today. Things are not quite right. Something is amiss, right? I mean, there's obviously problems out there. Something is off kilter. The jig is not straight, and therefore the table is not level, right? And of course, the solution that you have to whatever ails the world depends on what the problem actually is and what you identify as the core problem. Do we have an economic problem? I mean, if we could just meet people's basic needs across the board, have sort of a universal income, even out the income gap, that would help. And that would fix a lot of problems. The problem is poverty. Maybe it is a political problem, one way or the other, right? Maybe it's too much government involvement. Maybe it's not enough government involvement. Better programs. Maybe less government. They need to get out of our hair a little bit more. They're always interfering and messing things up. Maybe they're not doing enough. Maybe it's a political problem. Maybe it's a family problem. The problem really is that there's absent fathers. There's too much divorce. If we could just get back to a time when there was a nuclear family, and that was the hub of society, maybe, maybe then we could get things moving in the right direction. Maybe it's an educational problem. People just don't have enough knowledge at their disposal, enough information. They need to be educated better. They need to have better and clearer paths to success. And so we have got to educate them. That's the core problem. I mean, there's, there's a lot of possibilities out there, and I haven't even listed all of them. And there are as many solutions as there are possible problems. And all of this stems from our understanding, from looking around the world, that there is something off. We face some sort of a problem as human beings. And all of those are problems, right? And, and there are some solutions in what I, what I mentioned to you. But sometimes it's helpful, what we're going to try to do today and next week, is to get to the heart of the issue. What is the very core of the problem and the solution that is needed? All of the problems that I've talked about so far could be addressed with some tinkering, right? We could sort of adjust a few things and put a few few programs in place and maybe some better information, some more 
moral cultivation of people, better virtue, better character, right? Maybe we could make some minor or even major adjustments and and we would be able to fix things. The reality is that our problem runs so deep that we need something much more dramatic than that. We don't just need better information, less government, and a bit more cash in the bank account. It's not what we need. We need a radical and full transformation of the heart, the core of who you are. You and I need a new set of eyes. We need a new heart. We need a new mind. We need a complete renovation of who we are. And there's only one metaphor that really can pick up and pull together all that we need. There's only one metaphor that's full enough and rich enough to get to the deep-seated human problem that we have and the solution that we need. And that metaphor is a new birth. Now, personally, I have been present for the moment when four people made their entrance into this world, and there is nothing quite like it. A new life, a new set of lungs quickly became obvious that they possessed them. New eyes, new fingers and toes, a new little heart, new desires, new skills, new abilities. It is a dramatic moment to be sure. And there's a reason that Jesus uses that metaphor, that picture of a new birth. There's a reason that he uses that metaphor to describe what must take place for every single person who is born physically into this world. They enter this world, you enter this world physically, but there's another birth that has to take place for you. You need to be born spiritually. Spiritual life must come to you. You need a new heart, new desires, a new relationship with God. That's the core issue. That's the very center of all these other issues and all these other problems. And that's what we're going to talk about because that's what Jesus identifies and what he talks about here in these, this passage we're going to look at. So John chapter 2, verse 23 John 3, 21, and here's what we're going to see the next two weeks, part one and part two, four reasons that you must experience the new birth. Pretty straightforward, right? Four reasons that you, individually, every person sitting here, must experience the new birth. We're going to begin in verse 23 of chapter two, and here's the first reason. We have a problem that requires the new birth. So it's been a couple weeks. Trevor preached last week and did an excellent job. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John, but let me remind you where we were in chapter 2 and bring you up to speed. In chapter 2, if you kind of glance back down to verse 13 there, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He makes the journey to Jerusalem for an important Jewish festival, the Passover. And when he is there, he goes immediately to the temple, the center of Jewish spiritual life. Jewish religion, he goes there and he causes quite a scene there. He throws out the animals and the money changers. And after he does this, the Jewish leadership approaches him and asks him who gave him the authority to do this. Why does he, who does he think he is, that he has the right and the authority to do this in the midst of the temple? Jesus 
answers them by pointing them to a future sign that he would perform. And so his answer to that is, I have the authority because of something that is going to happen in the future. And he was specifically talking about his resurrection. But this sign that Jesus is talking about in the future apparently was preceded by other signs that Jesus did along the way in Jerusalem. We've already seen one of these, the water turning into wine in Cana. We're going to see more of them as we progress through John's gospel. But these are not the only signs that he did. Apparently, he did others even while he was in Jerusalem and people were taking notice of them. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, same time frame, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, plural, that he was doing. Now, you can read that and you can be tempted to think, well, sweet. Things are going according to plan, right? Jesus is doing these signs and people are believing. That's exactly how this is supposed to unfold. Right on. Except we come to find out in this passage that this is not real and genuine faith at all. Look at verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus sees people responding and sees people who are interested in the signs that he's performing, and he understands what is happening. He knows this is not real faith. This is faith that is an outward interest and expression of interest. It's not genuine faith from the heart. This is something that is, these folks are just interested in miraculous signs. They see something unique taking place and they are fascinated by it. And so they know, they believe that something interesting is taking place, but they don't have the full understanding of who Christ is yet. You see this again later in the Gospel of John when Jesus feeds the 5,000, a pretty dramatic miracle. Lots and lots of food available to a whole lot of people out in the wilderness. Jesus performs that on the spot, and look how the people respond. Jesus answered them, or look how Jesus answers back to them when they're interested, and how he identifies the problem with their interest. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Here's the issue. They see the signs, but they don't identify them as pointing to Jesus. They're only interested in the results and the food and the physical manifestations of this supernatural ability that Jesus has. They're merely interested in that. They're not ultimately putting their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why can't they seem here in John 6 or in John 2? Why can't they seem to bridge the gap? Why can't they seem to understand the signs as pointing to Jesus and identifying who he is? Notice in verse 24 of chapter 2 that it says that Jesus knew all people. And then again in verse 25, it says that he knew, he himself knew what was in man. 
And so there's something that Jesus understands about how people come into this world that keeps them from seeing him for who he is. There's something blocking their vision. They can't fully understand it. What is it? What's keeping them from seeing him? Look at John 3 and verse 19. We'll get to this next week, but what he says here. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You can see what the core issue is here. What's what's blocking their vision? What's blocking their vision is their love is set on the wrong thing. They love darkness. Humans are created originally in the garden to love God and to love other people, to turn outward toward others and toward God in love. But our sinful hearts now, after the fall, have been darkened, and we can't see. And we can't see that our greatest need is God. And we can't identify him for who he is. And we can't relate to him because of this darkness. And so instead, what we do because we can't see is we fumble around in the darkness. And we try to figure out how to get the most pleasure out of this life and how to make things work. And so we we fumble around and we set our love on all the wrong things and our affection And our hearts are drawn to all the wrong things because we just can't see because of the darkness of our sinful state. And so we try it all. We try food. We try comfort. We try power. We try money. We try sex. We try work. We try hobbies. We try everything as we sort of bump around in the darkness and we can't find the light that we need that brings clarity to our hearts and our situation. Ephesians 2 puts it like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, born into the world this way, like the rest of mankind. And here's the problem. A dead man cannot stand up and walk on his own. You cannot get out of this darkness on your own. We have no capacity to switch the lights on. That's our problem. That's the central issue for every human being born into this world. This is what was keeping them from seeing who Jesus was and from exercising genuine faith in him. And Jesus understood this. Right at the beginning, as he's performing the signs, he knew what was in all people. This is quite the problem, isn't it? You can't see because you're in darkness and you love your darkness because your deeds are evil and you give yourselves to these various expressions of sin in order to try to find light and pleasure and none of it works. And you can't find the light and you can't find the switch and you can't even see if you could because you're dead. This is quite the problem. So what must be done about it? What can we do? Well, the answer comes in chapter three and I want you to notice before we get to the answer, As you get into chapter 3, you have a very clear example 
of this general problem that we've talked about at the end of chapter 2. And this very clear example is this man, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus. Look at verse, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice that Nicodemus mentions the signs that were just talked about at the end of chapter 2. What was everyone seeing in chapter 2? The signs. And what does Nicodemus see? The signs. He's a very specific individual example of what Jesus was identifying up here in John chapter 2. Notice also that Nicodemus says, we know in verse 2. Rabbi, we know. He's a spokesman for a certain group of people. And in many ways, he's a spokesman for all of us. He's representing others. Now, Nicodemus is certainly not antagonistic toward Jesus here. He's interested in him. He's curious about him. And as we go through the Gospel of John, amazingly enough, there will be a progression that we can see that John mentions in the life of Nicodemus where we, I think, at the end of his life, there's real indication of genuine faith from him, but he's not there yet. Nicodemus is not believing in Jesus here. He doesn't really understand the ministry of Jesus yet. And Jesus uses this lack of understanding to pinpoint his exact need. And Jesus does what he always does in these conversations. He gets to the heart of the issue right off the bat. And here's the second reason that we need and that you need to experience the new birth. We cannot enter God's kingdom without the new birth. This is in verses 3 to 8. Now you'll notice, before we get to verse 3, look at verse 2 again. Nicodemus doesn't really ask a question, right? He comes and he sort of makes this statement to start off the conversation. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he makes this statement, not asking a question, and Jesus responds by going to the heart of the issue. Here's what is needed by Nicodemus. Not just a knowledge that Jesus has come from God, not just an understanding that he's doing these signs and an interest in those signs. Here's the heart of the issue. Here's what you need, Nicodemus, and here's what all people need as well. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has tried to indicate in verse 2 that he has some understanding of who Jesus is, and Jesus says, you don't yet. You can't see who I am yet because you have not experienced the new birth yet. The stakes are pretty high here. If you aren't born from above, you could translate this again, or you could translate it above and I think either of those works, and in fact, I would say John is probably intending to me in both of them. Being born again, being born from above are the same thing. But if you are not born from above, if you are not born again, spiritually speaking, you will not see the kingdom 
of God. Now, what does he mean by that? You will not see the kingdom of God. This language of entering the kingdom or seeing the kingdom is not used in the Gospel of John very often. It's only used in a couple of places. Two of them are right here in this chapter. But this language is used all over the place in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. To participate in the kingdom is to enter into God's eternal rule and reign at the end of the age. It's to find yourself under God's rule in a loving relationship at the end of the age when everything is set right, when sin is no more, and when God is dwelling on the earth with all human beings. It's the kingdom promised in the Old Testament and anticipated and expected by the prophets. In many ways, this language of the kingdom is sort of changed in John's gospel to eternal life. Those aren't exactly the same thing, but they convey the same destination and the same, or largely speaking, the same idea. Entry, here's the thing about verse 3. Entry into this kingdom requires new birth. Now, think about who's coming to Jesus here. All right? Nicodemus, who is he? He's a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. If anyone could have expected to be in the kingdom, it was this guy. This guy who had devoted his life to learning and teaching and obeying the Torah. He studied, he taught, he was a leader in Israelite religion. They even called him, we'll find out later, the, teach, the teacher of Israel. He's at the top of his game and he knows his Old Testament scriptures better than maybe anyone else. The problem for Nicodemus, though, is that entry into God's kingdom has nothing to do with good works, with position in life, with family lineage, or with a connection to a religious establishment. It has nothing, ultimately, those things do not cause that. Even for someone like Nicodemus, there has to be a radical change. Nicodemus clearly doesn't understand this comes as quite the shock to his system in verse 3, what Jesus says. And so look how he responds in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This appears to be the same problem that the Jews had. If you look back up in verse 20 of chapter 2, Jesus gives them a metaphor, a picture in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And how do they respond? Well, they take him quite literally. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Nicodemus seems to be afflicted with the same literalistic tendencies here. Weren't able to understand. And so he's not in the right ballpark understanding what Jesus was teaching in verse 3. So Jesus reiterates the point, and he changes some language to try to make this clearer for Nicodemus. Look at what he says in verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, right? Same phrase as verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So everything is the same in verse 5, except he changes born again to born of water and the Spirit. So what does this mean? Maybe this isn't any clearer to you than verse 3 is. Now what he's doing here, since verse 3 is parallel to verse 5, making the same point, when he says you're born of water and of the Spirit, he's not talking about two different births here. Okay, He's not talking about your physical birth and then your spiritual birth. He's talking about one birth. It's the same event that happens to be born of water and the Spirit. And to understand what Jesus is saying and why he uses this terminology, where would you go if you were talking to a teacher of Israel, an expert in the Old Testament, where would you go to help him make sense of this? You would go to the Old Testament. And so Jesus uses this language because this language is taken from Ezekiel 36. And that's where I want you to turn back to. So I will give you a moment to find it. Ezekiel 36. Take a hard left past Matthew, and if you hit Isaiah, you have gone too far. Ezekiel 36. It's a rather big book, so... And keep a finger in John, because we'll be back there. Ezekiel 36. Now, what's happening here? Let me give you a little context in Ezekiel 36. God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's promising a great restoration to Israel. They've gone into exile, and he's promising to restore them. Things will be made right. And when they are made right, God will be their people, or God, they will be his people, and he will be their God, and they will be in close relationship to him. Let's start in verse 22, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 28. See if you can pick up on the language of being born of water and of the Spirit here. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so this expects a time when God will make things right, and Jesus is saying, this is what has to happen in your life. You have to be born of water. You have to be cleansed from the defilement of your sin. That's where the water comes into play here. 
It's a metaphor showing that this new birth means to be cleansed from the defilement of your sin and to be born of the Spirit, born of water, cleansing, and of the Spirit is to be given new life. You can see the radical transformation that happens in Ezekiel. Verse 26, 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's a radical transformation of desires and of wants and of dispositions and of everything internal to you. God is promising here that things will be made right and this is how it is going to happen. What's going to happen when you're born of water and of the Spirit is that the darkness that we talked about earlier of the human heart is going to be erased. The rebellion against God is going to be put aside and it's going to be removed from you and cleansed from you. And now instead of loving the darkness and loving what is sinful, now you're going to love what is right and you will have a new set of desires because a new spirit will be put within you. The Spirit of God will now live inside of you. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit is there at creation, creating and bringing about new life. And when the Spirit enters into you as a human being, when He comes and renovates your heart, He brings new life as well. So back in John 3, Jesus says, What was taking place, what was promised in Ezekiel 36 is what has to happen. A cleansing from defilement and a new spirit and new life is brought to you. That has to take place. And then he expands on that in verses 6 through 8 in John 3. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, here's the point. When two parents come together, and a new life is the result. The newborn baby is born of the same material, physical flesh, just like the parents. And most likely, that child will resemble his or her parents. Like begets like. And in the same way, just like you were born physically, out of flesh, when you are born spiritually, New life comes to you by the Spirit. And only those who are born of the Spirit can enter God's kingdom and have a relationship with God. Now let's be clear here, okay? We're not talking about New Year's resolutions. A new you in 2022. Hey, that rhymes. Very nice. We're not talking about a few new habits here. A new exercise regime New viewing habits, putting your phone away at 8 o'clock at night. We're not talking about all of that stuff. We're talking about something dramatic, a massive change, a new birth. And the New Testament is quite clear that something entirely new has happened in those who are born from above. Listen to these other passages. Titus 3, he saved us not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, being born anew, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 6.15, 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, the keeping of the law, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He has brought it about to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Christian theology world, we call this regeneration. And it is absolutely necessary for salvation, to enter the kingdom, for eternal life, to be saved. Because of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, every human being is born into the world spiritually dead. Those four children that I watched be born into the world are born spiritually dead, and so is every one of you when you enter this world. We are born physically, with physical life, without the spiritual capacity to know God. The lights are off, and we love our darkness. We're born with our will set against Him. We want to rule and reign instead of God. So here's the reality for each of you sitting here. There must come a moment in your life when you receive the new birth by the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's making it quite plain and quite clear. You cannot enter God's eternal kingdom without it. Now, there are some Christians who do not know exactly when this took place. Sometimes you don't, but it always happens. And it is a total transformation of life. But here's the difficult part of this, right? Here's the challenge to this passage. Most of you, maybe all of you, don't remember your physical birth because you had nothing to do with bringing it about. You didn't initiate it. You didn't cause it. You didn't control your own physical birth. And you cannot control and you cannot initiate your own spiritual birth. Look at verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus is doing something quite intentional with verse 8, okay? He's alluding back to Ezekiel 37. So, hopefully you held your finger in Ezekiel 36. Maybe you didn't, but find it again. And he's alluding back to Ezekiel 37. He's already talked about 36, and now to the teacher of Israel, he wants him to think about Ezekiel 37. God promised a new birth through water, through cleansing, and through the Spirit being given, new life coming through the Spirit. Now, in Ezekiel 37, God gives Ezekiel a very vivid illustration of what he will do in the future with the Valley of Dry Bones. I'm sure you've heard about this before, but let me read it to you, starting in verse 1 of Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, or to the wind, it's the same word, same word that is also used, spirit, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Prophesy to the breaths, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath or the wind, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Notice how the bones come to life. How does it happen? Through the blowing of the wind or the spirit or the breath. It's the same word that is translated in Hebrew as wind and spirit. And in Greek, it's the same thing in the New Testament. It's translated both ways. That's why he says what he says in verse 8 of John 3. The wind or the breath or the spirit blows where it wishes. He's alluding back to Ezekiel 37. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. God blows over a dead heart with his sovereign spirit and brings new life. John 1.13, who were born, let me start in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's also the point in verse 8. You can always see the effects of the wind, can't you? When the wind blows, you see that it's blowing. How often have you looked outside on a windy day and seen the trees bending in the wind? How often in the summer, may it arrive quickly, how many times in the summer have you felt a cool breeze and you didn't even realize it was coming up on a hot summer day and it was glorious? When God's spirit moves, you can't always see where it's moving and you certainly can't control it. But when God's spirit moves in the heart and gives new life, the effects are obvious. It's clear. You can see the effects of what's happening. Let me just sort of pause here for a minute and point something out. The Bible does not know of a spiritually regenerate person, a person who has been born from above, born again, a person that possesses eternal life, who does not demonstrate the reality and the results of that new life. The Bible does not know that sort of person. It's not to say you're perfect. It's not to say you won't struggle with sin and it won't be difficult at times. But the Bible does not know a person who is born again, who has new life, who has God's spirit inside of him or her, who acts the same that they did before and has the same desires 
It is a radical new life transformation. The wind causes things to happen. You could see the results of it. The spirit causes things to happen. And you could see the results of it. So, I don't want to be harsh, but I want to make this clear. You cannot claim to be born again and have zero interest in Christ and his bride, the church, for the better part of your life. It doesn't work that way. It's what scripture teaches. You cannot claim to have eternal life and live a life centered on self and your own desires and think that the spirit has transformed your heart and you are a new creation. It doesn't work that way. It's what scripture teaches. When my children were born, I knew they were alive. It was quite evident. There was a lot of movement. There was a lot of noise. There were diapers to be changed. The signs of life were present and they were there. And it was not always pretty. But spiritual life is obvious. There is a struggle and a fight against sin and not a laying down and an enjoyment of it year after year, decade after decade. A prayer that you prayed when you were a child and have had zero interest in Christ and his church since then does not automatically indicate that you have spiritual life. So let me circle back around here. Bring all of these, I wouldn't say loose ends, but bring all of these ends together. Summarize a bit. We all have a spiritual problem, a major problem. This is the problem in the world. Spiritually dark hearts that cannot see, that are in rebellion against God. We need new birth. We need to be born spiritually. We need to have God's Spirit open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. And we need that new birth so that we can enter his kingdom and receive eternal life. But here's the kicker in the passage, and you have probably felt this tension already as I've been talking, and that's good. I want you to feel the tension. Some of you may be frustrated at the tension, and that's fine too. Here's the kicker. You and I can't control or bring about our spiritual birth, just like you can't control and bring about your own physical birth. But you can see the effects of spiritual birth. So what are we to do? How do we handle that? What do we do with this tension that we feel? How do we go forward? While you and I can't bring about our spiritual birth, we do, and this is what we're going to get into next week in John 3.16, we do have a very gracious God who delights in imparting spiritual life through his Holy Spirit. He loves doing this work. He loves giving new life. And how does he do that? I've already told you, you can't control it. It has to come from him. The wind blows where it wants and we can see the effects. So what do we do? How does he impart spiritual life to us? Listen to James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How does he do it? It's through the word. 
His Spirit works and brings new life through the Scriptures, through the Bible. So what do you do if you don't know? What if you're concerned that there really haven't been new desires in you? You're not really interested in all of this. You consistently have issues with sin and you really don't want to fight it. What if you're not sure? What if you're not confident and you can't figure out how to move forward in this? What are you to do? The word of God is the instrument that God uses to bring about spiritual life. So submit yourself to the word. Go to the word. Expose your heart to the word. See your sin for what it is. See it as darkness and rebellion against him and listen to the word and listen to the offer of God's love and why he sent his son that whoever believes, trusts in him, will not perish, but will have eternal life and will enter the kingdom. And so cry out to him in belief. And as that happens, there's a really good chance and I say that tongue-in-cheek, that spiritual life has happened and that the new birth has occurred and that you will enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for these truths. It's abundantly clear here that we need the new birth and we can't control it. And so what do we do? We throw ourselves on your grace and mercy. We run to your word. We need the truth of the Bible. We need to make sense of our sin and see it for what it is, as a rebellion against the creator, holy God of the universe. And then we need you. We need you to do this work in our hearts, Lord. And so I pray for those here today, maybe some who've never experienced the new birth, I pray that they would they would be acted upon by your spirit through the instrument of the word this morning. Use this passage to bring about new life. Thank you for the God that you are, a God of love and of grace and of mercy, and a God who delights to save. It's in Christ's name we pray.